Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, August 7th. In today's news, the NRA discussed buying a $6 million house last year for its CEO. An FBI official who got fired for anti-Trump text messages sues to get his job back. And Orange County in California, once as synonymous with republicanism as the elephant, turns blue. But first, the big idea. Red flag laws might not be enough to stop shooters who often slip through the cracks. President Trump and Republican leaders have made red flags such as mental illness, violent crimes, or domestic attacks a priority for identifying people who should not be allowed to have guns. They say such warnings could prevent attacks better than gun control. Several states have passed laws limiting access to guns when authorities receive warnings. But some young people, including those responsible for or accused of some of the nation's worst mass shootings, have shown clear warning signs and still have fallen through the cracks. For red flags to work, someone has to raise them. The FBI examined 63 active shooters who opened fire between the year 2000 and 2013, and all of them, every single one, had displayed worrisome behaviors beforehand that people around them had noticed, often expressions of a desire to commit violence. My colleagues Kevin Sullivan, Valerie Strauss, and Emily Davies delved into what else the Bureau discovered. It turns out, maybe not surprisingly, that in most cases, people who saw what would be red flag behaviors responded by talking to the person directly or doing nothing. For the attackers who were 17 or younger, teachers and students were more likely than family members to notice the behaviors. For the older attackers, spouses or domestic partners were most likely to spot them. The study concluded that posed a problem. Those most likely to spot dangerous warning signs often feel loyalty to the attacker, refuse to believe they could commit violence, or fear what would happen to them if they report the issue. Virginia, Maryland, Florida, Texas, and at least 13 other states so far have mandated threat assessment programs in schools to identify students who are troubled and have made some threat of violence. But these programs almost always end at graduation. Troubled students who have been monitored and counseled as teens are often on their own as adults. Businesses across the country are increasingly recognizing the need for threat assessment programs to look out for signs of danger from their own employees. But if a person doesn't work for a company that has a threat assessment program, it can often be left to friends and family to spot problems. And the FBI study finds that those people are often the least likely to say anything. Meanwhile, Trump is heading down to El Paso and then to Dayton today. Our reporters on the ground in both cities relay that the grief and sorrow from the weekend has given way to anger and frustration. Local leaders and residents have become increasingly vocal that presidential condolences and thoughts and prayers will not be enough. People are signing petitions, planning protests, and in Dayton, organizing a demonstration featuring an inflated baby Trump balloon to express their discontent with a president whose anti-immigrant rhetoric was echoed by a gunman who killed 22 people in El Paso. The mayor of Dayton, a Democrat, says she supports the protests in her city. And the congresswoman from El Paso says that she is refusing to meet with the president when he arrives. And while the motive of the man who killed nine people in Dayton remains unclear, Trump's silence on the issue of guns has been criticized by local officials who want action to prevent future massacres. The open repudiation of a visiting president in the aftermath of a mass tragedy like this is striking and is historically very unusual. 
And remember last week's shooting at that garlic festival in Gilroy, California? Well, the FBI announced yesterday afternoon that it has opened a domestic terrorism investigation. Agents found that the 19-year-old gunman, who's now dead, had delved into, quote, violent ideologies, and he had prepared a list of possible targets across the country, including religious institutions, political organizations linked to both major parties, as well as federal buildings and courthouses. The special agent in charge of the FBI's San Francisco office declined to share the list during a news conference yesterday, but he says everyone on it will be notified. We live in scary times. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that ought to be on your radar this hump day. Number one, documents leaked to my colleagues Carol Lenig and Beth Reinhardt indicate that the National Rifle Association planned to purchase a luxury mansion in the Dallas area last year for the use of Chief Executive Wayne LaPierre. The discussions about the roughly $6 million purchase, which was not completed, are now under scrutiny by New York investigators. The transaction was slated to be made through a corporate entity that received a wire transfer of tens of thousands of dollars last year. The New York Attorney General's office is zeroing in on this as part of an ongoing investigation into whether the gun lobby can maintain its tax-exempt status. One property that was considered for LaPierre was a 10,000-square-foot French country estate with lakefront and golf course views. The four-bedroom, nine-bath home in a gated golf community northwest of Dallas resembles a French chateau with a stately boxwood-lined drive, a formal courtyard, vaulted ceilings, and an antique marble fireplace. These discussions about buying this house came as the NRA was in deepening financial trouble. The nonprofit was on track to run a deficit for the third year in a row. It had cut back dramatically on its core mission of gun safety and legislative work. It had also frozen its employee pension plan. The origins of the idea to buy the mansion, its proposed purpose, and the reasons the deal never went through are now being fiercely disputed by the NRA and its longtime advertising firm, Ackerman McQueen. The two entities are locked in a bitter legal dispute. Both sides accuse the other of wrongdoing and insist they're the victim of a smear campaign. But the invoices don't lie. Previously leaked documents to my colleagues show that the NRA paid $542,000 for private jet trips for LaPierre, including a trip to the Bahamas with his wife after the Sandy Hook shooting, and an array of Italian designer suits, as well as the rent for a summer intern's apartment. The expenses were first paid by Ackerman McQueen, which then billed the NRA as part of its multi-million dollar annual contract. LaPierre last year, or I guess in 2017, the last time we have a tax filing available, received a salary of $1.37 million. But that doesn't include the perks. Number two, Peter Strzok, who was fired from the FBI after his anti-Trump texts were made public, sued yesterday for reinstatement. Strzok asserted in his suit that the Trump administration had, quote, consistently tolerated and even encouraged partisan political speech by federal employees, but only if that speech praised the president and attacked his opponents. The former senior FBI agent who Trump has attacked repeatedly alleged that his removal was part of a broader campaign against the very principle of free speech, which he says was initiated and led by the commander in chief. Strzok alleges in his suit that others in the bureau have not received similar discipline for criticisms of Hillary Clinton. And he claimed that the FBI deputy director who fired him did so because of unrelenting pressure from Trump. Meanwhile, the case against former White House counsel Greg Craig, who was charged in connection with special counsel Bob Mueller's Russia probe, will proceed to trial this month, despite U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson yesterday dismissing one of the two charges against him. 
Craig, who is Barack Obama's first White House counsel, and before that a special counsel to President Bill Clinton, was indicted in April on suspicion of lying to federal agents. In a 57-page opinion, the judge struck the charge alleging that Craig made false statements in a letter submitted to Justice Department officials who monitor foreign lobbying activity because she says there's a lack of clarity in the law. But the judge retained the charge alleging that Craig tried to conceal his potential status as a foreign agent through false or misleading statements. The law, she says, clearly puts foreign agents on notice to report their activities and who paid for them. And John Huntsman, Trump's ambassador to Russia, is abruptly resigning from the diplomatic post he's held for almost two years. His resignation is fueling speculation that the former two-term governor of Utah may make a third run for that office. Remember, he resigned during his second term in 2009 as governor and became U.S. ambassador to China under Obama. Then he left that post two years later to run for president. Huntsman, who's 59, says he wants to return to his home state to reconnect with our growing family. Number three, there is a once in a generation realignment underway in American politics. We're seeing signs of it every day. And here's a a watershed moment, really, in American political history. The L.A. Times reports this morning that the county that nurtured Ronald Reagan's conservatism and is the resting place of Richard Nixon is now home to more registered Democrats than Republicans for the first time ever. Democratic leaders attribute the shift in Orange County to changing demographics, aggressive recruitment efforts, and Trump. Republicans are attracting many non-college-educated white voters in the Rust Belt who used to vote Democratic, but in places like Orange County, Republicans are seeing significant declines. They point out that many people aren't becoming Democrats, they're just becoming independent, no-party preference folks. And they say that a lot of people are leaving the state of California because of high housing costs, poor schools, and lackluster job opportunities. The OC was the base of Reagan's support when he ran for governor. He held his first ever political fundraiser in Anaheim in 1965. In 1984, when he got reelected, Reagan got 75% of the vote in Orange County. But Hillary Clinton beat Trump there by five points in 2016. That was the first time a Democrat won there since FDR beat Alf Landon in 1936. And then in the midterms last November, Democrats flipped four Republican-held congressional districts in that county. Key victories that helped give them the majority. It's really impossible to overstate the extent to which Orange County was the epicenter of post-war conservatism. That's where John Wayne lived. It was the hub of the John Birch Society. The first megachurches started there. But tectonic changes are underway, and nothing stays the same in American politics. These dynamics predate Trump, but he has supercharged them. The changes in Orange County are similar to what we've seen here in the D.C. suburbs, in northern Virginia, or outside Philadelphia, or Minneapolis. Change keeps happening. And that's The Daily 202 for August 7th. Thanks so much for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.